Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello and welcome once again to another episode of The Next Track podcast. This is episode number 63 and today we're going to take a leap into the Wayback Machine about 35 years and talk about a little old prog rock band named Yes. And helping us out is our guest, author Will Romano. Will, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. We recently came across a new book that Will wrote that immediately caught my attention because it's about one of my favorite albums of all times, Close to the Edge by Yes, literally their masterpiece that they recorded in 1972. Now, I've seen books about individual albums before, in particular, Miles Davis's Kind of Blue, who spawned a cottage industry. I think there are at least three books about it. Will, what prompted you to write a book about this one album? Uh, I think that's a really good question. I think having you know, written about this uh, music in the past, I think there was a sort of a practical reason and uh, let's say something that was sort of tugging at me. Um, I really wanted to focus and sort of drill down on something. So I got to thinking about this. What would be the one record uh, that sort of uh, uh, that was composed of all these different elements that made progressive rock great? And I sort of zeroed on, you know, on a few. You know, if I'm being completely honest, there were a few uh, there that uh, that probably could fit the bill. Uh, but I, I think I, I gravitated towards Close to the Edge, not only because it's a great record, but I think it had all the things that made Progressive Rock great uh, that I'm sure we'll probably get into. But uh, these, uh, you know, the classical elements of their uh, jazz elements or their even folk elements. Um, it's certainly the European influence uh, with the American influences as well. I mean, they're all there and they're sort of, sort of intermingling. It, uh, and it, it, it has this sort of it, the entire feel of the record. And I think I get into this in the book. Our feel of the record has it, – it's very smooth. You don't feel like – particularly uh, close to the edge itself. You don't, you don't feel like you're listening to a 19-minute song. Um, you know, this sort of conciseness, if you will, cohesiveness uh, to the piece I felt was very important. That was another sort of aspect to this about why I thought the close to the edge for, you know, would be a good uh, record uh, to sort of zero in on. Because I think that there may be other records that had done something similar. But what is it about the song in particular that uh, that still has a sort of longevity? So all these things sort of made me think about, well, maybe Close to the Edge is sort of it. And uh, other people have asked, you know, why not in the Coil of Crimson King? Why not Tarkus? Why not Bring South Surgery? All these records that I, you know, that I had been thinking about myself. And I think uh, with the exception of maybe perhaps uh, Bring South Surgery, because I, of course it came after. Uh, close to the edge, um, these were sort of laying the template of what progressive rock sort of is. I think a lot of the rockers in that era were looking to elevate rock music to some sort of symphonic level. They wanted the symphonic rock. So, yes, tried to do, if you will, the symphonic rock thing, as other rockers were doing uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, by actually incorporating a symphony. They did that on time and a word. Uh, I don't think I'm out of line by saying it didn't quite didn't quite work. Good record, but didn't quite work. And now, yes, had a chance to kind of do a symphonic sound without the symphony. And they were successful. And I think that's what the progressive rock were striving for you know, all those years uh, in, the, in the mid to late 60s through the early 70s. That's the sound they were after. And yes, we're able to do that through um, all the main means that they had at their disposal, including uh, tapping uh, someone like Eddie Offord uh, to, to make their you know, the sonic dreams sort of come true. Uh, all the layering, uh, the playing, all of the stuff sort of contribute to the sound. I think it's even why bands were using the Mellotron in, in, the, in the late 60s and early 70s. They wanted the sound. They want to combine the 
as I said, the, the concert hall and and in the arena, rock arena. And uh, I think that uh, Close to the Edge sort of, for me anyway, I think it, it kind of it did it. You know, it's interesting when you look at the, the difference in just a few years from, say, the mid-60s to the early 70s. And I'm going to quote from your book. You say that many British artists and musicians I've spoken with over the years have described the UK's sudden transition from the 1950s to the 1960s as being something quite magical, like switching from black and white to technicolor. And it's really amazing when you look at even, yes, over a few years, how they changed from a, a sort of pop-oriented group to a group that had these lofty ambitions, but that the whole of progressive rock became something that, that technicolor is a great word because, you know, you've said it, they, they tried to put everything into it, a symphonic approach, classical, these large-scale elements, heaps of bombast and and you know the the gold lame capes and and all that 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 made everything excessive yet there's something about this particular album that back then and even now it has never really to me at least sounded excessive no exactly I, exactly I, I don't understand this i don't understand how this is they were able to do this how you could have a 19 minute song and it feels honestly like five minutes i mean i've listened to five minute songs that felt longer than this Again, this is all just stuff on, at a gut level, uh, but there's something about Close to the Edge that uh, the ideas seem fresh, uh, the combination of, uh, of this modern and, uh, and, and the look back, the traditional, um, as I said, kind of, uh, it, it really hit upon this point of what progressive rock is, and, um, and I think that this idea of inspiring people, too, I think is, is very important. Um, it seemed to hit at the right, just the right time uh, for people. I think progressive rock was still on the up, uptick. And uh, people were still expecting great works. Whereas if this was 74, 75, I'm not so sure. And I think that uh, Progressive Rock by the mid 70s was sort of running out of steam where I think it was picking up steam by 72. So I think maybe that's something, you know, that could be uh, commented on as well. One of the things your book pointed out that, that I wasn't aware of is that um, this is the last album where there was a, uh, a collaborative effort among the individual members of the band. And it seems like later, everyone brought their own individual compositions to the albums. So might it be that this collaborative effort was the engine that drove the early albums, whereas later albums didn't really seem to come across as ambitious or as cohesive? I would, I would say that, uh, because I think uh, just looking at uh, Tales, again, to, to come back to that, as I said, I you know, really like it. Uh, but coming back there, I think uh, you know Rick Wakeman, for one, never really liked the record, uh, and which is ironic, I think. A lot of what I think about Rick Wakeman, you know, is close to the edge and, and tails. I mean, I think his his work on it is actually pretty good. He doesn't really like the record, so I think that there you can almost hear that some though sometimes in the music. Uh, there is some padding, uh, and uh, even if you're saying some guys did contribute here and there, I mean, you have uh, you know with close to the edge, you've got uh, the drummer contributing uh, you know certain uh, you know musical ideas as well. So I mean, it it really was sort of everyone uh, everyone on deck. Everyone contributing, uh, Rick sort of uh, going over things and making sure things are you know uh, are smooth, you know, were smoothed out. Um, whereas I think it was probably a bit different with, and certainly even the later uh, relayer, uh, where the band was sort of you know it, it shook up a bit uh, because of uh, Patrick Ramirez. But I, I mean, I don't want to say that they weren't uh, collaborative necessarily. But I, I think as you moved along in the seventies, I think it became tougher for the band to get in the same room and and, and perform. Uh, certainly by the late 70s. I think it was a uh, bit of a uh, disaster, I think. Where was Yes in the musical landscape in 1972 when they set out to record Close to the Edge? They had had the Yes album, which I guess was the first album that 
really started developing these musical ideas. And then they had Fragile, which had Roundabout, which was their first real hit. What was their position as musicians? Were they selling out arenas by then? Were they still in smaller theaters? Uh, no, they were not selling out, uh, you know, arenas. But you know, by then uh, they were, they might be playing larger venues, uh, but that would be in, uh, you know, if they were on a, you know, a bill with with another uh, another act. So they weren't doing that just yet. Uh, but they were, as you're saying, they were sort of gaining steam here, and people were in America were taking notice. I think that they were knocked out. I don't know if anyone had really heard this kind of thing before. Uh, this kind of, you know, this naughty sort of music uh, that was sort of jazzy, but it wasn't at the same time. It's jazzy, it's classical, it's folky, and, and you know, sometimes Steve Howe is, is almost like a hard rock guitarist. Exactly. I mean, he's got this uh, this roots, uh, you know, Americano, this roots music thing going on, uh, country music. Uh, I When I always think of Steve Howe, I always think of Steve Hackett from Genesis, uh, yeah. because he's, if Howe was country or country and western, if you will, uh, then uh, Hackett was it was blues, um, you know, coming from that angle, and of course other things as well. But um, but yeah, it, it, again, I, coming back to this, to this point, I, that's another sort of strain of thread through this of bringing the you know American music into what you know what is rock music? What is rock and roll? I mean, you, you're, you're talking about the you know the very essence of rock, whether it's blues or country, they have, those elements are there. Um, and I think that always sort of astounded me why uh, people were saying, you know, this was, uh, yes, uh, and we could talk about Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, all day long, but you know, why people never thought, yes, we're, let's say, a rock band. Uh, they, they could rock out, uh, you know, with the best of them, uh, whether they wanted to be a rock band. You know, Steve Howe has said certain things over the years, but, um, you know, that, that maybe that's another story. But all those elements were there. And, uh, you know, to get back to your, your point, yes, they were riding high uh, on Roundabout. Uh, and uh, and just the, the the general feel of, of fragile uh, that you know that hit the charts and I was on for a while and uh, you know I remember looking at I, I guess I didn't even know for sure myself but uh, I think what was happening is that you had fragile and the SM on the charts at the same time uh, for a time um, so they were sort of uh, they were making waves and people were taking notice particularly I would say in the college crowd uh, and I talked to a number of people who had seen them at that point. Um, even some people had seen uh, Bill, uh, Bill Bruford with with the S, which is sort of a rarity um, because he would be gone certainly by mid '72. So um, all these things were sort of factors into you know where they were, and I think they were sort of uh, they, they were feeling their their oats, if you will. They were kind of uh, uh, they were they were ready, they were ready to spew, so to speak. What What's interesting is that the album was released in September 1972, and they were three months into a tour where usually a band goes on tour after they've released a new album. They don't usually release an album in the middle of a tour. And it was hugely popular. According to Wikipedia, it hit number three in the U.S. and number four in the U.K. And in other countries, it went to number one. 450,000 advance orders in the United States. In October, it was already gold with half a million. That's huge for, for a band to go overnight from, okay, on on the rise to all of a sudden you know, one of the leading rock bands. It, yeah, it's difficult sometimes to you know, put your finger on this, and maybe that's, um, you know, it's a, a question that I think might be hard to, to actually answer why that's the case. But I think it could be cultural, it could be societal, uh, but, you know, maybe that America was just was ready for that, they wanted that. Um, and maybe they wanted that kind of escapism, it's hard to really tell. Um, but I think it's, it may go back to this idea that progressive rock in general was on the upswing, I think. Yeah, progressive rock was on the charts with a bullet, as they say. But one thing I think that contributed to it was the rise of FM radio, which could play these longer songs. 
It was the arena shows. I remember seeing a BBC documentary a couple of years ago, and they were talking about the second British invasion when particularly bands like Led Zeppelin were getting too much demand to play in small theaters and had to start playing in arenas. And this happened just around 72, 73. So Yes was sort of riding on that wave when all of a sudden arenas were playing concerts and they actually needed bands to come and play concerts so they could sell tickets. <laughs> exactly. So you're right. Uh, I think this point about uh, FM is, is, is well taken. The format uh, obviously was, was changing as well. I uh, get into a little bit in the book, the, you know, the, the progressive rock format and uh, and what that did uh you know the, all this idea of uh, album oriented uh you know rock sort of format and uh, and abrams and you know what he had done and uh, and all these things that you're right it sort of contributed to how we were listening to music uh what music was being distributed and i think this also then it's it really is sort of a circle and, and what the record labels were sort of signing you know as well they were if you will taking a chance if you want to do a 19 minute song they, they, they didn't I think it allowed the musicians some some latitude to create uh, because they knew, as you said, you might get airplay any, uh, you know, at the, at the very least. And uh, of course, you've had an edit of, of roundabout and that kind of thing. But I mean, I think that, you know the, the point that you're saying is well taken about the fact that you had the radio stations that that, that could play these these, these longer songs. Um, but uh, here's the thing: I mean, I don't know if Yes was necessarily always the, you know the singles band, despite what I just said about uh, roundabout. Um, and I think that's what Close to the Edge is, is, is so interesting. That, you know, the, the, those singles that came from didn't do that, <laughs> that well. There's a reason for that. You're, you're taking this music out of context uh, and just having a, a portion, a, you know, a few-minute portion of Close to the Edge really doesn't mean that much. Uh, it was very difficult. You really had to hear it within context and to hear where the thing, sort of, if you will, progressed, where it evolved. But it was a bit of a taster that got people, it, it exposed them to the sort of, the, the yes sound. Absolutely, sure. And uh, in that particular, you know, Total Master Tam, in that particular section of it, it's what, you know, I guess you could say, sort of, the, if you will, the poppy, if you will, you know, the uh, uh, the more elemental sort of versions, if, you know, if I could use that term even, of, of that uh, song. Um so yeah, I think that uh, yeah, absolutely, it did, it did kind of get uh, people giving them an idea of what uh, what might be there. Uh, but yeah, you didn't want to be deceived by that either, or fooled by that, uh, because there was so much more to it uh, than that. Um, but yeah, I, I think again, all these things uh, that that you're saying, radio and and people's willingness and, and the need to escape, I think it probably helped hype this. And, and there were, of course, other bands you mentioned, Led Zeppelin, but there are other ones. Let's say even like a Jethro Tull sort of straddles the line between Prague and what whatever and folkish rock and folkish blues rock depending on the album yeah i would cite two seemingly minor things that probably helped yes become popular the first was that anyone who played a guitar back then knew how to play the introduction to roundabout <laughs> it was just the thing that everyone learned and so everyone knew that song and and that sort of helped them have a certain presence and the second and you you cover this in a chapter in your book is the cover by Roger Dean which became iconic for this band. Obviously Dean had done the cover for Fragile already, but this was tapping into the whole sort of fantasy, you know, Tolkien thing. It it was an alternative world. It was tapping into a desire and it was something that we had with big album covers to have this artwork that was encompassing that would take us places. It is. I think this gets back to you know, the whole, you know, uh, Wagner factor of uh of you know it, it, it it's it's almost a synesthesia that that, that happens uh, it, it's sort of uh, all these elements sort of uh, this whole artistic package 
I guess it's a phrase I'm trying to get at here. Uh, words, you know, if you were lyrics, uh, music, and sound, uh, you know, the images, it's sort of hitting you. And I think that's what Professor Rock was so good at. I uh, was able to deliver all of that in one package and sell it to you for your five ninety nine or whatever six ninety nine. So I was able to you, know, you were able to get all that, uh, you know, with with one hit. And yes, understood this. At least they came to understand this too. And I think that's why Roger Dean was so important. You know, there would be times I, I guess I could say I was guilty of this too. You, would you pick up a Uriah Heap album otherwise, unless Roger Dean? You know, if yeah, Roger I, Dean did not do that. Would, would you do that? I mean, I, 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 you know, I would look at certain albums. Just I just like the look of it. I have an idea of what this might sound like because Roger Dean did the artwork for the, the illustration for this. It's certainly true, and and it's the same with some of like the Pink Floyd albums and and the Hypnosis design. That when you saw that design on other records, they would attract you. Unlike today, you'll either see a, a five-inch CD or you'll see a little thumbnail on a, a website. You don't have that same attraction. But we also would spend time... I remember some of these great album covers in The Court of the Crimson King and Brain Salad Surgery and Close to the Edge that I would spend a great deal of time staring at these album covers while listening to music with a sort of external influence that caused me to want to stare at album covers, but they were really interesting. <laughs> no, I think that's, that's true. I think it has this almost uh, hypnotic quality. I think it's sort of a, uh, it's a ritualized thing. It becomes a meditative thing for me. It almost becomes yeah. uh, esoteric or occult, uh, pardon the, you know, the phrase. But I think it does. It becomes almost this occult thing where you, again, it sort of funnels into this idea of what Close to the Edge is even talking about, about the, the soul and the self and about the reflection and about uh, you know the, the higher being or you know the higher self, and I think that this kind of, again that kind of funnels into this this whole idea of, uh, of of sort of reflecting on things and then meditating. And I get into that a little bit in the book about the you know the actual color green and what it means and all this kind of stuff. So um, it it I think it really helped the listening experience. I just said you might have other things too that might have have helped the listening experience, but I think this for sure uh, did because it gave you something to gaze at. I gave you something to think about, and uh, it could take you away. And I think perhaps at that point, maybe you did need uh, you know a bit of a you know escape. It. So yes, toward in 1972 with this album, and and obviously playing a lot of their earlier songs, and then they filmed a couple of shows on the tour and released the film Yes Songs. They released an album called Yes Songs, which actually isn't a soundtrack. It has different versions of most of the songs. It seemed to me growing up in Queens in the mid-1970s that the film Yes Songs really kept the band alive because we would go to these midnight movie screenings on either Friday or Saturday night, and I would say every three or four weeks, Yes Songs would be one of the films. Because it was a good film, but also because it's only about 70 minutes long, so as part of a double feature, it worked very well. And it seemed to me at that time that Yes was just, you just always heard the music. Well, good point. I think it you know operates maybe similar to the you mentioned Pink Floyd, Pink Floyd laser shows, maybe this kind of thing where, like you're saying, there may be some extracurricular going on there as well, or perhaps before or after, you know, however, however you want to say it. But I think, um, but in particular, because of when the it wasn't filmed uh, when it was released, obviously, or just before it was filmed a few years early. So when it was released, it really sort of like as you said, sort of kept. Yes, his name out there because the mid seventies were. I mean, for me, it was sort of a malaise. I mean, uh, even with the Yes, they were sort of around touring, but they didn't really release studio record. Uh, they had Relayer in seventy four, and they didn't really come out with another studio record until seventy seven. Same thing with Emerson and Palmer. So some of the bigger names, and even Floyd, uh, they had a bit of a gap in there. They couldn't seem to sort of get. They were having their their, their troubles there. 
coming off of Dark Side of the Moon, who could blame them? Well, Dark Side of the Moon was 72, and Wish You Were Here was, what, 75, and then Animal 77. So they, they weren't releasing an album every year, but it's true that this was the, sort of the decline of progressive rock once we got past about 75, 76. Y Yes's 77 release was... It wasn't great. So the only time I ever saw Yes was in August 1978. They were playing in Madison Square Garden, and... I got I got up at two in the morning with friends and we waited on line and we got tickets like in the middle of the orchestra. And then at some point there was an ad in the New York Times saying, oh, you've got to come in and return your, exchange your tickets because the stage has been moved. So this is when they did this um, series of concerts in the round. And I ended up with tickets in the sixth row and the eighth row, which is absolutely the best seats I ever had in an arena concert. And that was really good because they were doing... They were doing all the classics. They didn't do Close to the Edge, but they did most of what was on Yes songs other than that. But then they were doing these new songs from, you know, the late 70s and and Don't Kill the Whale. And that kind of, that was the descent from that point on. That's true. And I think you can feel it in the, in the band, too. I mean, they had trouble after Tormato. They had, uh, it just it fell apart. I mean, I've talked to other people about this, uh, about that particular period in, in Yes's history. It was not good for them. They were not uh, together. Uh, you know, you had uh, people in, uh, you know, coming from uh, different uh, headspaces, uh, let's say, and uh, and they were uh, they were almost I don't want to say combative is the wrong word, but I, th I think that they were certainly looking out for themselves. And I think what we were talking about uh, in '72 with Close to the Edge, I don't think that camaraderie was really there uh, once you got to '78, '79, uh, which is why obviously uh, Rick Wakeman and John Anderson eventually left, and we had drama. Um, which, you know, I, I, again, I, I, I think for, for a band that was sort of broken, I mean, the record, you know, I, I've had mixed feelings about it, but, you know, in, in retrospect, uh, it really wasn't as bad as it could have been, um, you know, given, uh, given everything that they had gone through, uh, you know, really crawling over broken glass to get that, to that, you know, that record out. So, uh, but I, I, I know exactly what you're saying. There's something here that happened in the mid seventies. Of course, everyone always talked about punk and, and the genre itself then imploding, but there's it almost like uh, these guys were just sort of tired, or like they were exhausted uh, from from doing this. Uh, I think again, Floyd is a, probably a really good example. I mean, even there, I mean, you had they were playing songs in the mid '70s that wouldn't appear until Animals two years later. I mean, they were already playing this type of stuff that didn't uh, that wouldn't surface. So even there, they're not even writing new material if you want to look at it that way. So that you know that material of seventy four seventy five wound up being you know three years later on animals, <laughs> so they were having trouble getting this stuff out uh, as brilliant as it was. So um, and I think yes was was part of that. And it's like a Palmer. It's interesting because I think these two careers sort of mirror one another. Uh, if you say that the nice influenced yes. I think you would have to certainly say that yes, definitely influenced them. It's like in Palmer uh, at that point. They were sort of pushing each other. And I kind of use the example of uh, Beach Boys, uh, Beatles, Rolling Stones, Zappa, all these guys was sort of, uh, you know, this sort of uh, in circle of influence that was happening. They were all sort of commenting on each other. I'm sure there are birds. There are other bands that you could throw in there. They're all sort of part of that uh, Donovan, also part of this, this sort of thing. I was sort of funneling this sort of a circle of influences. But, um, and I, I kind of see that uh, with the Yes and, and ELP. In particular, I'd say it's, it's, it's very interesting because they work with the same producer, if you will, engineer, Eddie Offord, until he said, hey, look, you know, I got to go off with the Yes. They want me to tour with them. Uh, I've got to make a decision here. Uh, very interesting that he did this before. What I think is their in my mind, is their best record, which is a brain cell surgery. He actually was not, he did not work with them on that record, uh, which is very interesting. He didn't quite uh, get to do that, but he did obviously work with Yes. 
you know, through uh, really through the mid seventies. Yeah, and so looking back at this forty something years later, wow, that makes me feel old. Yes, really had that peak with three albums with Fragile, the Yes album, and Close to the Edge. And they lived off that for a while. And then, as you say, things sort of broke up. But they are one of the bands that broke up and got together and reformed and broke up and got together and reformed the most. A lot of these progressive rock bands did it. But yes, more than any of them. I agree. And I, I think, how do you really, I mean, I actually saw the Amazon Lincoln Powell show there in the mid, mid 80s. But how do you have Amazon Lincoln Palmer without Emerson Lincoln Palmer, you have to have, I mean, it's, it's, it's elemental, right? But yes, because it is yes, you could have a number of people come through there and still have a sort of generic sound. I think they understood that. They knew that. Uh, so that when they brought in Trevor Raven, uh, he, you know, fantastic hit uh, for them. But I think some of the other songs on the record, you, you know, vaguely had, had sort of vague yes sound. I mean, I think that they could, it, it was passable. Good material, but you had that, uh, if you will, an updated sound, let's say. Uh, and... Um, and it, it could pass for almost classic yes to a degree. And I th again, I think that Chris Squire you know, sort of knew that. And again, in talking with people over the years, it was this idea of, you know, if we call the cinema, we're not sure. Uh, in the re if you will, the reform yes and what it was called before you uh, was called yes. Um, if we call the cinema, you know, is that doing us you know, any justice? What is that doing for us you know, on a marketing point of view? And I think they also knew if we don't bring in John Anderson, we're probably perhaps dead in the water. Uh, I, I think you may get nasty letters here, but I think John Anderson really is the heart and soul of yes. I mean, he is yes in, in, in a lot of ways. But yeah, I mean, well, yes and no, but I think he's in a lot of ways. It, it, a lot of his, his voice is so distinctive that it's hard to it's hard to replace. Whereas Phil Collins could replace Peter Gabriel by adapting Genesis's music, you can't do that with John Anderson's voice. And you know, Kirk is so much more than that too. It's 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 what he's it's, it's his vision. Yeah. Whereas. Yeah. And, and, and this is really odd that you say that because I think a lot of times it was Peter Gabriel's vision, at least lyrically, you know, where he conceptually, you know, if you look at the Lamb lies down on Broadway, which has you know over the last the twenty years, uh, you know, they're, they're, I always loved the the Genesis material that was just after he left, which was the Wind and Wuthering stuff. But I think over the last twenty years, I've I've really come to realize how good the Lamb lies down on Broadway, how complex it is, and what he was trying to say with, it, with a lot of this stuff. So I think a lot of it, it's it's sort of odd because I think he, a lot of the sort of visionary stuff was his, and yet they were able to move on uh, from that. They were, yeah. They did change in in a positive way with those two albums, Trick of the Tail and Wind and Wuthering. And then, of course, they became more of a pop band, but they morphed into something new without trying to stay what they were before, whereas, yes, it seemed that they wanted to keep being what they had been, but just do it over and over. And they just didn't, and they just didn't have the creativity anymore or the chops to do these few albums again. No, I think I think my point about them being exhausted, I think that's probably true. Uh, you know, I think that they just they couldn't. I think mentally exhausted. I just I don't know how much. Again, you, you look at the Relayer, and there's another. It's a huge another epic track. How many of these tracks did they really write? That's they're good. Well, I was I was saying to Doug before the show that I think Close to the Edge was their downfall because they saw that they could write a 19-minute track, and they said, well, let's write some more. And Tales from Topographic Ocean, you like it. I I could never really get into it. I usually get bored about halfway through each track, and then that long track on Relayer, I don't like the Relayer album at all. And it seems like that they just figured, we're going to keep writing symphonies, yet the world didn't want to hear their symphonies anymore, I don't think. No, I think that they probably should have, uh, you know, the universe should have collapsed there uh, for a little bit. Uh, maybe it should have, maybe a 15-minute song. How's that, guys? So I think that um, I, I actually do like Awaken. I think for me that makes that record. 
uh, in a lot of ways. If you took Awaken away from go, uh, going for the one, I don't know what you have there. Again, very interesting sounds. I like the sound of the record uh, going for the one. Uh, it just sounds really good. Uh, but, I mean, without that, without Awaken, I think you've got trouble there. And then what do you have? Uh, you've got Tromato, which is, uh, in my mind, was always a compromised album. You've got Don't Kill the Whales. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, you know, where's, guys, where's, where's this going? So, um, you know, Arriving UFO. Some really strange, you know. I, I don't want to have this, you know, descend into you know me critiquing these records, but it, it, it it's it was not the the classic. Yes, I mean, if you were looking for a rock symphony, this was not it. Uh, so I think that they had uh, they just had run out of ideas. And, and the world moved on. You mentioned punk earlier. You know, things were changing in the seventies. We got to the end of Vietnam, and all of a sudden, people had to work instead of worrying about being drafted. You know, then we got Reagan, and everything just went downhill from there. <laughs> right. It just, uh, right, it, uh, it, was, it was a different world. Things changed a lot in the late 70s. I was 18 in 1977. That's when The Clash's first album came out, Talking Heads. Uh, you know, all of that, it was like, it was a slap in the face, but it was, it was this 180-degree turn in the kind of music we were listening to. You know, we didn't want to listen to these 20-minute songs anymore. We wanted energy. We wanted... We wanted something that had a different kind of meaning instead of a deep philosophical meaning. We wanted something more immediate by then. Yeah, I think particularly in well, also the UK, obviously too, but like particularly in America because of Watergate and everything. I was, as you said, the Vietnam coming to an end. You you, you want to close that chapter. Enough of the shine on your crazy diamond, you know, kind of thing, yeah. which is slow moving pieces, which is again almost feels like you're in a drug haze. Uh, to great song, I do love it. Yeah. Uh, but there's, there's again. I think it's sort of it's in, it's tapping into the times. I think that Yes was doing that too. So by then, as you said, seventy six, seventy seven, you wanted to not go back to those Watergate days. You wanted to not go back to the Vietnam. It, they they were they were done. They were done and over. We had a new president, and in the UK, obviously, they were still struggling, uh, you know, economically. Uh, but uh, things were happening politically over there as well. The, the, the winds were should whatever side of the fence you're on. Things were changing. You had Thatcher coming in uh, by the late the seventies. So. Things were changing there as well. So I think that the page had been turned and uh, we didn't really look back. I mean, I, even today, people talk about uh, you know, progressive rock, but can't be that progressive rock meant something uh, to the society at, at a certain point. I don't think it could ever mean that thing again, even if we can say uh, that the music was some of the music was, was good and some people were playing in that vein. It's not the same. It doesn't have the sort of the same cultural sort of relevance or significance, I think. Uh, you know, again, and I like the fact that there, there are new bands out there. Uh, well, new was a relative term. Uh, some of these bands themselves have been around 30 years. So, um, but I think that uh, obviously it's, it's more of an underground thing. They, they are making some uh, headway into the mainstream. But, um, you know, this idea of what progressive rock might mean in, in the larger sort of, uh, you know, larger sort of culture, I, I think that's, that's missed. That's never going to be replayed again. Will Romano, thanks very much for spending time talking about your book. It's called Close to the Edge, How Yes's Masterpiece Defined Prog Rock, and there'll be a link in the show notes. Thanks so much, Will. Thanks for having me, Kirk and Doug. Okay, before we wrap things up, as usual, it's time to present our next tracks. Kirk, what are you listening to? So for my next track this week, it's obvious I have to pick something that is progressive rock. When we were talking about the long songs that these bands played, and, and we didn't mention another one of my favorites to, together with Close to the Edge, and that's Supper's Ready by Genesis. It was on their 1972 album Foxtrot, which came out pretty much the same time as Close to the Edge. It's a 23-minute track, which as far as these long 
sidelong progressive rock tracks go, has some extraordinary musical inventiveness, time signatures, thematic development, and it tells a huge story. It's got Peter Gabriel at his finest, the band at their finest. It's Tony Banks, Phil Collins, Peter Gabriel, Steve Hackett, and Mike Rutherford. That's the core genesis. They played this live. It's on Seconds Out, which I picked the Seconds Out album some months ago as my next track because I've always liked that album. And as Will said during the podcast, he was talking about the two albums after Peter Gabriel left, so Trick of the Tail and Wind and Wuthering, and Seconds Out was taken from those tours. So it's got this early music and it's got this sort of post-Peter Gabriel music, and and it shows a a well-rounded genesis in terms of music and in terms of vocals. But I keep going back to Supper's Ready as one of those long tracks that just has so much to say musically. So check it out. It's on Foxtrot. I don't really like the rest of the album, except the first track, Watcher of the Skies, which has these wonderful Mellotron riffs in it. And there's this little track called Horizons, which is a minute and a half on the beginning of side two before Supper's Ready. But Supper's Ready, that 23 minutes is just, this is prime prog rock. It's up there for me with Close to the Edge and Thick as a Brick and all these other long tracks. So that's my next track. What about you, Doug? Do you have any prog rock this week? I do. I have an appreciation for the three classic Yes albums. I think we know which ones I'm talking about. But as a teenager, I couldn't commit to Yes because the musical friends who I had, they didn't get Yes. The Rolling Stones, The Who, even Early Queen and Deep Purple, they were fine. But nobody in my crowd did much Yes. And in fact, um, much prog rock at all, for that matter. I don't think anybody had anything past Tull's benefit. You know what I mean? But I liked the songs that Yes had on the radio, and I already liked long-form things like Zappa, and I liked live performances. So I bought Yes songs, the triple-disc live set Yes put out in 1973, right after Close to the Edge was released. I don't think it's a great live recording. It's kind of muddy, you know, the way some live albums sound. They just sound like they were recorded in a cardboard box. But I was really impressed with the way they played the tunes, and it was a good sampler of some of their best stuff up to that point. In fact... I actually prefer the live versions of And You and I and Siberian Katru from Yes Songs to the studio versions on Close to the Edge. And I have to tell one other Yes story. I was an avid reader of Rolling Stone magazine when they did a story on a Yes tour of America. I don't remember what year. It had to be the early 70s. Rick Wakeman was still in the band at the time. And the thing I took away from the article is that Wakeman didn't want to hang around with the rest of the band because they were vegetarians and he was not. And he just wanted to find some decent beer to enjoy. And so that sort of gave me a better perspective on Yes. Yes, Yes Songs is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.